weeks, I'm going to do something a little bit different than what we've um, kind of done in the past. We're going to kind of um, basically go through a book, and kind of as we're going through that book, uh, we are basically going to be parallel, parallel, making some parallels between the book of First Peter and some of the things he draws out in this book, Everyday Church. Um, so really this morning, I want to kind of bring an introduction to a study that we're going to be in for about the next seven weeks. And uh, as you know, we've been really encouraging uh, us as a church to really, over the next year, really push ourselves to step out of a comfort zone, to push ourselves to step out of our security areas to really present our faith, to stand up bold for it, to not be ashamed of it, to ask God for opportunities to share our faith with others, and to really, as best we can, pray for opportunities, act on those opportunities, and just ask God to work in our areas of influence to see other people come to the faith of Jesus Christ. But this first message is kind of a in an introduction, if you will, into this study that we're going to be in for the next seven or eight weeks or so. So let's just take a moment and pray, ask God's blessing on the service or on the message this morning, and then we'll get right into it. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here this morning, Lord, to, to be able to sing these songs. Lord, talking about ancient words that are ever true, and Lord, the fact that the Bible does not change. What you wrote thousands of years ago is still applicable to us today and we're thankful for that and we can sing about that um, and Lord just the fact that we can be here to worship you and to bring glory to your name through song and I pray that you would speak to our hearts through the word this morning as well and I ask God that you would challenge us but Lord not only challenge us change us Lord to be uh, open and ready and willing to change to do things differently to reach the people and the nation that you put us in Lord we're thankful for our heritage God but it's not one's it's not today what it once was in the country that we live in. Lord, there is animosity, there is hatred, there is a, a marked affront against anyone who claims the name of Christ. And I ask God that you would just give us boldness and power, as you said you have in your word. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the type, type of, title of the message this morning is, Life in the Margins. Say, what in the world does that mean? Well, we're going to get into that in just a few moments. But life in the margins. Um, you know, it's often easy to be discouraged regarding the circumstances around us. As children of God, as believers who are faithful to God, we see a decline in church attendance. We see it all across the country. As we said before, there are a lot of larger churches that are closing their doors. I'm sorry, a lot of smaller churches closing their doors and kind of joining forces, two or three churches over here and two or three churches over there, or two churches merging over there to create a larger church because they think it's going to bring more stability or whatever. But we see really on a national level, we see a decline in church attendance. Uh, we see a decline in tithes and offerings. Uh, I think we're living in a day where people feel less secure about their incomes, right? Uh, you know, the jobs that people used to be able to get right out of high school or college and you know, work for 30, 35 years in one job, those jobs aren't available much anymore. You know, and people who thought they had security no longer have that security. Uh, we see a decline of moral absolutes. You know, what we once would all agree was wrong, well, it's only wrong now if you think it's wrong. If it goes against your personal preference, well, that's fine, but, you know, for me it's okay. We're seeing a decline of moral absolutes. Now, I want to kind of read just a few things that uh, 
Tim Chester and Steve uh, Timmis wrote regarding some of these things. It says, Much of the decline in the church in the West has been the falling off of nominal Christians. I think we agree. There are Christians who are, and we all know them, who are those diehard, gung-ho people. They just, they're not going to miss church for nothing. Every time the doors are open, they're there. I mean, they're in their Bible every day. I mean, you know, they're the super you know, red-hot Christians, you know. And then you have those other ones. Well, I'm a Christian too, but, you know, I kind of, you know, I go to church when I feel like it. I, you know, if it's convenient, there's nothing else really more, more pressing than I go. But, you know, there's all kinds of, on the spectrum of Christianity, you know, all people who, you know, who live out the Christian faith, but those that claim to be Christian. But really what they're saying is we're seeing the decline in that group of people who are nominal Christians. And as a result, what, it, what Steve uh, uh, Tim is saying is that uh, what is left may actually be more healthy. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But we have the opportunity to become communities focused on Jesus and his mission. The number of true Christians may not be falling so steeply, if at all, but what is fast disappearing is the opportunity to reach notionally religious people through church activities. Throughout the years, maybe you've experienced, I know I have in my life, is that we have this great big church activity and we invite everybody we can to it, right? And then through that church activity, we're going to present the gospel, they're going to come to faith, and they're going to become part of us, right? We kind of That's the idea, that was the hope. But that's not really reality anymore. It's not the reality at all. So he says to seize these new opportunities, we first need to recognize that the Christian gospel has moved from the center of our culture to the margins, to the sidelines. Um, according to the Barner Research Group, it is estimated that nearly 100, people in the, 100 billion, I'm sorry, million people in the United States have absolutely no contact with the church. Isn't that amazing? It was reported here just about two years ago that the North American Mission Board did a poll and they said there are over 62, between, somewhere between 62 and 67 million people just in the Northeast that have no consistent, regular contact with any church. That, to me, is amazing. I mean, we, it seems like we would all know somebody who goes to church somewhere, right? But yet, 62 to 67 million people just in the Northeast, the four or five state area, that have no affiliation of church. Other studies conservatively proclaim a minimum of 85 million people who have no intention of ever stepping into the door of a church. And so we have a job to do. He goes on to say, In the 18th century, American Christianity was a dominant worldview. Not anymore. Now Western societies are a melting pot of worldviews. We can no longer assume that if people want to find God or discover meaning or cope with personal crisis, that they'll go to church to find out those answers. It used to be that they would find somebody who was quote-unquote religious. If I'm going through a struggle, I have questions, I'm going through a trial, I need answers, I'm going to find somebody who goes to church, and I'm going to ask them, I'm going to find a pastor. It really doesn't matter what denomination, but we're going to find somebody who's religious and we're going to ask our questions of them. That's not the case anymore. That's not what statistics tell us. Uh, they may attend any number of religious bodies or sects, they may even go to a therapist or read a self-help book. But merely opening our doors every Sunday is no longer sufficient. Offering good products is not enough. It may be that middle America follows the lead of its cities and becomes more secular. Or it may be that America becomes increasingly divided nation with secular elitists, but with a religious heartland. What is clear is that great swaths of America will not be reached through the Sunday morning service. 
Isn't that what we've been saying the last several weeks? We're not going to reach the masses by expecting them to come into the church. And quite honestly, I can't blame a lot of them for not wanting to come. A lot of Christians in a lot of places claim to be Christ followers, yet their life doesn't back it up. You know what the world calls that? Hypocrisy. Don't say your one thing and do something else. Don't claim that you go to church and then live like the world. It's hypocrisy. And the world is not stupid. They see it, right? So you can't really blame them. It was said that George Whitfield and John Wesley preached open-air meetings because they were not welcomed in the church during their day. And beside that, the people they were trying to reach weren't in them. Isn't that amazing? That was their own statement. We weren't welcome to preach in the churches, so we preached in the open air. Besides that, the people we want to reach weren't in there. They were out here. Where are the people that we need to reach? Outside the walls of the church. Uh, no more business as usual as if we're going to reach the lost with the gospel inside the doors of the church. Going on here, I'm going to read just a couple more quotes. Steve Timmis goes on to say, 70% of the United Kingdom population have no intention of ever attending a church service. And what he said is this, that means new styles of worship will not reach them. Remember this in the last 10, 12 years, churches had this idea that we got to change everything to reach the world around us. I mean, we've got to change our dress, we've got to change our music, we've got to change our style of preaching. We gotta I mean, just, just change everything and then they'll be attracted to it. Change everything and then they'll be interested. I mean, we've got to do some things different and there's some truth to it, but it's not the almighty truth. New styles, as they tell us, according to statistics, will do nothing to reach the masses. That means fresh expressions of church will not reach them. That means Alpha and Christianity Explored Evangelistic Courses will not reach them. That means guest services will not reach them. That means meeting in pubs will not reach them. And by the way, yes, there are churches doing that, but it's not gaining anything. Um, that means toddler churches meeting at the end of the school day will not reach them. The vast majority of unchurched and dechurched people will not turn to the church, even if faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedies. Statistics tell us that changing the way you do church in the big picture does not ultimately reach the unsaved and the unchurched. So expecting them to come through the doors of our church so that we can finally share the gospel is not going to change anything. And we need to be careful that we don't change our tactics of church to sway to the world in the hope of reaching somebody that will not be reached by that. So, the statement that comes to my mind is, it sounds a lot like the go that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. Matthew 28, 19 says what? What's the first word? Go. Or as we said in the Greek, literally means as you are going about. In other words, as you go to work, as you go to church, or as you go to yeah, church, as you go to the grocery store, as you go to the gas station, as you are going to talk to the neighbor across the fence next door, as you are living life, are we praying for God to give us opportunities to share our faith? Are we praying for God to give us discernment to know what to say and when to say it? Are we praying that God would just Give us wisdom and, and knowledge of his word so that we can applicably uh, approach as we are sharing our faith. 
It's not a question of improving the product, he says, of church meetings and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. If we're going to reach the world around us, it's not going to be inside these doors, primarily. It's going to be outside these doors, outside these walls. So it's not a matter of better music, better multimedia, better programs, better location, etc. You know, the Bible no longer has authority in public discourse. The church no longer has the privileged voice. Let me give you a couple examples. Have you noticed in many courts of law, one no longer has to place his hand on the Bible and solemnly swear the truth? Have, have you noticed this? This is truth. It used to be as you go into court, place your right hand, left hand on the Bible, right hand in the air, and you what? You pledge your truth on the Word of God. You don't, it's not required anymore. If you're, if you're not a Christian and you don't want to do that, you just, you just swear to tell the truth. I don't have to use the Bible anymore. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, have you noticed that church is no longer the center of a local community or the center of a town gathering as it once was? How many remember the days of Little House on the Prairie? Remember those days? I mean, where were all the town meetings held? Where anytime someone had a problem with a neighbor, where did they go? I mean, the church was the center. It was the center of everything. And everybody knows that Father Alden knew everything. I mean, he had all the answers. We joke about it, make light of it. But there's a lot of truth in that. There was a day that when a pastor spoke, it was like we wanted his opinion because it meant something. We wanted to go to the church because we might get some answers, some help for a problem we're facing. That's not the, that's not the, the, the go-to direction anymore. So we're now living in what this pastor called a post-Christian era. Our, Christian, our nation is no longer based on Christian principles as it once or live, living, being lived out as it once was. I want to read one more set of statistics before I open into 1 Peter this morning. Stuart Murray, in his book entitled After Christendom, lists seven transitions that mark the shift from Christendom to post-Christendom culture. Seven shifts. Number one was Christianity was from the center to the margins where Christianity was a focal point for many, many years. And, you know, from the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, it has moved to the margins. It's no longer the center of attention. And what he's saying is this. In Christendom, the Christian story at the churches were central, but in post-Christendom, they're marginal. Number two, Christianity went from the majority to the minority. You believe that? I mean, look around what's going on in our culture. What look, look, you listen to on the news it has gone from the majority to the minority. In Christendom, Christians comprise the often overwhelming majority. But in post-Christendom, we are a minority. And there's a reason for that. It's not going to change. And we'll see that in just a moment. Number three, and I think there's some good truth to this. Christianity, from settlers to sojourners. We've gone from settlers to being sojourners. In Christendom, Christians felt at home in a culture shaped by their story. But in post-Christendom, we are aliens, exiles, and pilgrims in a culture where we no longer feel at home. Isn't that truth, though? This is not home. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are exiles in a country that's not ours. Number four, from privilege to plurality. In Christendom, Christians enjoyed many privileges, but in post-Christendom, we are the one community among many in a plural society. Well, it doesn't matter what, you know, there's Christians and then there's, 
you know, non-Christians, there's atheists, there's agnostics, and then there's, you know, you're just one of several. Pick which one you want to be a part of. If any, you have freedom. Do what you want. Number five, from control to witness. In Christendom, churches could exert control over society, but in post-Christendom, we exercise influence only through witnessing to our story and its implications. In other words, one-on-one. You no longer have the main voice as a Christian. In fact, if you do, you're going to get crucified over it. We see that in the news every night. Um, I was watching the news the other night, and there was a, a, a fellow from New York University who said, if you're Christian, you ought to just like be canceled off this campus. Really? But it's okay if you want your liberal views to maintain, be maintained. Christianity is no longer a focal point. You're no longer a center. You're on the sideline looking in. You're no longer a majority. You're a minority. Number six, Stuart mentions that we went from maintenance to mission. In Christendom, the emphasis was on maintaining a supposedly Christian status quo. Because as a Christian, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. You maintain the status quo. But in a post-Christendom, it is on mission with a contested environment. We have a mission that is being contested. So true. And number seven, from institution to movement. In Christendom, churches operated mainly in institutional mode. But in post-Christendom, we must become, again, a Christian movement. And how does a movement gain momentum? You've got to open your mouth. No longer just maintain a status quo. No longer just a private faith. No longer just to yourself and your family and just huddle together and hopefully nobody knows about it. It's time to reach out and create a movement again. So I come to this question, why does this information matter? Who cares about it? Why should I think about it? Why should I contemplate what is happening in the world around me and in my culture where I live? What does it matter? It matters a lot if we want to understand the people that God has called us to reach. It matters a lot if we want to have influence in a world that doesn't want to have a Christian influence. So if you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. I'm not going to go through every little detail of the verses here. I don't have time for that. But as I said this morning, I want to just kind of build a little bit of a foundation where we're going to be going for the next several weeks. But I want to, if you would, read along, follow along as I begin reading verses 1 through 12. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold which perishes, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him, though you have not seen him. 
And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time and what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he was testified in advance through the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. In verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who uh, preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. So why does all this information matter? Well, first of all, Peter opens this epistle by addressing his readers as temporary residents. I mean, think about that just for a moment. Think about this. How cool is a reminder is that? That you're not here as a, as a child of God, as a believer in Jesus Christ. This life is temporary, right? Thank you. It is temporary. I don't care whether you live to be 5 years old, 25 years old, 55 years old, or 105 years old. You are still in this life just a little speck on the timeline of eternity. This life is temporary. And Christians are very much like temporary residents, foreigners, aliens, immigrants. And let me just say this, we don't belong. So is it any shock, is it any wonder that the world looks at us and says, man, they're a bunch of lunatics. We don't live for what this world has to offer as God's children. At least we shouldn't be. In fact, you don't need to turn your Bibles there, but in Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, God reminded Abraham that he was a foreigner in a, in a land that was not his. In Psalm 119, verse 19, he says, you're a stranger in this land that is not yours. In Acts chapter 7, verse 29, as he's referring back to Moses, he said, you're a person who is in exile in a land that you don't belong in. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, once again, you are a foreigner in a place that's not yours. As God's children, this is not our home. But we forget that. We all forget that. Johnny Hunt often says, why are we living as though we are never going to leave? Building and building and building our earthly storehouses. He says, we are accumulating as if we are never going to leave this earth. It's a good question to consider. What is it that we're living for? Because God's words remind us is everything's going to be tested by fire of what sort it is. And there are only two things that will spend the test of, test of eternity, and that's the souls of men and the word of God. And if we're not building on one of those two things, we could be wasting a lot of time. So we think about this for just a moment. We are chosen. We have hope. In fact, keep your fingers there just for a moment. And turn back just a couple pages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. Once again, referring to Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed, went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in a land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has his foundations, whose architect and builder was who? God. He said, we stayed here as foreigners living in tents. Think about that. That's cool. You guys like camping? Some of you like get away on the weekends? How would you like your whole life to be revolved around that? Abraham goes in this land. It's a land of promise. And he stays living in tents. 
And once again, we put our anchors down so deeply as if we're never going to leave this place. And we are just here for a period of time. We're chosen. So he says way back in the beginning, at the end of verse 1, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart by the Spirit for obedience and so forth. In John chapter 14, I love this. Just a reminder, Just I, I know you know this, but I just want to read it to you again. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. It says, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am you may be also. He says, listen, what we're here, what we're doing here is just temporary. We have something greater to look forward to as God's children. It's called heaven. That place will be eternal. Amen? That will be what never changes. In fact, one more verse I want you to look at. Philippians chapter 3. This kind of nails the whole concept here. Philippians chapter 3. I want you to follow along as I read verse 20. It says, But our citizenship, that means where we belong, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we live as though we're never leaving? Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. I just want to read this. It says, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. Let's live as though we're not part of this world. Let's live for the world that is to come. In other words, we're not investing every little thing that we can invest by creating deeper roots into this life, to this world's systems. Think about this just for a moment. How does a foreigner become a citizen of another country? How does a foreigner become a citizen of another country? I've had friends who have moved to Canada and they've had to go through this process. I've had friends who have gone to India and have gone through this process. I've had them who come to the U.S. and have gone through this process. But if you ask the government how I can become a citizen, they'll say something like this. Well, you have to live there for a certain period of time before you can apply for citizenship. And there's value to that. You begin to learn the people, the customs, the language, the circumstances revolve, revolving around who we are and where we came from and how we gained our freedom and so forth. There's much to learn. So you need to live there for a period of time. Uh, number two, you maintain good character. You learn and obey the laws. You follow them. And then, ultimately, eventually, you have to take a citizen's test. And I've been told that the citizen's test includes things like our... Uh, our uh, national anthem, our Pledge of Allegiance, and some of these other things that are important to us as U.S. citizens. But you have to take a citizen's test. But let me give you a flip side of that coin. You know there's an easier way of becoming a citizen? You know what it is? You can be born in that country. Born in that country. You see, when you're born there, 
you've inherited something right off the bat. You're going to grow up in the culture. You're going to know everything there is about it. You're going to be taught the laws of the land. You're going to learn how to obey them. It's totally different coming from another place and becoming part of this place versus being born in this place. You see, I think that's how it is with us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Being born. In fact, what's he say here? In verses 3 through 5, it says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us, what? A new birth into a living hope <laughs> through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a new hope, a new birth. So it's amazing. A living hope and a new birth by being born into Jesus Christ. Hope. Anybody remember Shawshank Redemption? Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best thing. Amazing what hope will do for you. People die when they don't have hope. Hope changes everything. But here's the thing that I know as a believer, as a child of God. Every stinking difficulty I face on this earth, everything that God allows in my life that I would never choose, that I would never pick, everything that discourages me and gets me down, whether it be people or circumstances or tragedies, whatever it may be, here's what I know. It's not permanent. It's not permanent. I have hope. Hope that it's going to change. Hope that it's going to get better because one day I will pass from this life to the next and spend eternity with my Lord and Savior because of the new birth. We are citizens of a new homeland. Meanwhile, look at verse 5 once again. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It doesn't matter what the world can do to us. It doesn't matter. Now, I'm just going to tell you, in my flesh, I want to fight back. That's how I'm wired. You probably are too. Someone decks you, you want to deck them back. Is this because we do as men? And he's saying it's right. I'm not saying you're being filled with the Spirit that way. But we are protected. And there's nothing that man can do to hurt us, ultimately, under God's control, under God's protection. So our faith, indeed, makes us strangers in our homeland. We may have been born here. We may be part of this world's system. But it's not our eternal resting place. We are going to spend eternity in heaven. God's word says to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. One day this will pass. So being temporary residents doesn't mean we don't go through trials. In fact, look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials. He's reminding his readers, you've been through it. And remember, go back, go back to verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents, dispersed. Think of that word, dispersed. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. What's he saying here? He says, you people have been uprooted. You, can't stay where you, you couldn't stay where you were. You've been uprooted. You've been transplanted. And then he reminds them down to verse 
6, you rejoice in this, though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials. Would it be a struggle for any of us to be uprooted from our home? Has anybody ever had to leave your home for a few days because of a fire or because of flooding or because of mold or because of whatever? You've had to just leave and you wanted to go back to your house and you couldn't? That's a pain. I don't care how nice the motel is. What do they say about fish? They start to stink about three days out of water. You've got to get back to your own aquarium. I like my bed. Anybody else? I don't care how nice the motel is. I want my bed. Dispersed. Going through trials in various circumstances that none of us would choose. None of us of our own free will would choose to go through trials. But why does he say this? Verse 7. So that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. When this life is over, woo, it's going to get good. Think about that for a moment. The best of earth cannot compare to the least of heaven, right? You're going through some trials. You're going through difficult situations. You would not choose them. You wouldn't pick them, but God has allowed them, and it's temporary. Why? Because your faith is going to be challenged, but it's all going to be for the purpose of when you meet Jesus Christ, you're going to bring glory to his name because this is going to pass. And here's the thing, verses 8 and 9. You love him, though you've not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and what? Rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. <laughs> How about you? But the last time I went through a hard difficulty or a hard trial, I, I, I didn't really want to rejoice. I wanted to gripe about it. I wanted to get irritated. I, want, I wanted some like justice through it. I mean, let me know it's for a reason, right? Isn't that what our flesh wants? Come on. Am I the only one? I want, I want to take things into my own hand and make it right. I want to fix the situation. That's what my flesh wants to do. I want to, this stupid situation that I find myself in, I want, I want to deck somebody and just like make it right somehow. In my flesh. He says, no. <laughs> no, this is for a purpose. In the end that you'll have joy because of what God will do through it. It's not how we think sometimes. Not how I think. But we're temporary residents. He says you love him. You know, all of 1 Peter was being written when persecution was starting to ramp up. Remember what took place? Nero had set fire. He wanted to blame all the Christians. And this is the same time period that Peter is writing here and persecution has become very real. It wasn't real cool, popular to be a Christian during this day when 1 Peter was written. And yet, God was working mightily through him. Just a couple more passages and with this we'll close. If you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Uh, look at verse 18 through 20. 
says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Who's, t- who's, who's speaking here? Jesus is. Jesus is, I mean, I mean, <laughs> who deserves to be loved? Jesus. Who died on the cross? Jesus. Who gave everything to come down to this earth? Jesus. And yet, he says, don't. <laughs> if the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Let me ask you this question. What did our great governor of New York say a year and a half ago? He says, you're a Christian. Get out of this, get out of this state. We don't want you here. That's what he said. And yet this is where we live. It's where God has for us to be. But he says, if you're a Christian, get out of here. We don't want you here. Guess what? Don't be surprised that the world doesn't love Christians. This is to be expected. It's okay. You join the ranks of people like Jesus. I think that's a good rank to join. But don't be shocked. The world doesn't understand that we live for a higher calling. One more. Hebrews chapter 13, if you would turn over there. Hebrews 13. I just want to read a couple of verses beginning with verse 11. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering to be burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Then verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Think about this for a moment in conclusion. I think there's three things we need to understand as we live in this world that God has us to live in. Number one, we need to understand who we are. We need to understand who we are. We're God's children living temporarily in a world that's not our final resting place. We look forward to heaven. Amen? We need to understand that. So don't live as though we're never going to leave. Number two, we need to understand where we live. We live in a world full of sinners, ourselves included. We live in a fallen world. As God's children, we, have to be, we happen to be sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. We have hope. We have forgiveness. But the world around us, why do we expect them to love us? Why do we expect them to be like us when they're not? We're believers. We believe in God. That puts us in a different vein. We need to understand that. Don't expect the world to understand everything that you face and do and how you respond to everything. And then number three, we need to understand what we're here to do. What did Jesus Christ come to do? He says very clearly in John 3, I came to seek and to save the lost. If that was his mission, what do you ought to think ought to be our mission? Seek and to save the lost. Ask God for those opportunities. That's why we said a couple weeks ago, we need to be praying to God to give us opportunities to share our faith. 
I'm not talking about forcing our faith on anyone else. I'm talking about acting on opportunities that God gives us to simply tell someone else what God has done for us. And we need to understand, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean they're going to listen. That's the reality. But that doesn't minimize the call. And if we're going to have impact in the world that we live in, we need to understand who they are. And that they're not just waiting in line to know everything that you know about Christianity, about the Bible. It gets back to loving others, which we're going to get into in the next couple weeks. How do we love others? Man, there's a lot of people who claim to love. And quite honestly, I don't want anything to do with them sometimes in my flesh. Because what they deem as love is not love. It's hatefulness. It's love with parameters. It's love with guidelines. If you do this, then I will. That's conditional love. Aren't you glad that God didn't place conditional love onto us? Well, if you can just like, get rid of all your sins, then I'll save you. And then my love will be for you. God, God didn't do that. He gives us an opportunity to come to faith and to build that relationship. And the longer we're in a relationship with him, the more we realize what pleases him and the more we realize what doesn't please him. And we begin to do the things that we know brings glory to him. And we seek to do the, and not do the things that doesn't bring glory to him. Because we love him. But we need to understand who we are. We need to understand where we live. And we need to understand what we're here to do. Let's not get that mixed up. Because we're not here forever. Amen? Let's not live like we're going to be here forever. Let's live for what's going to come. Let's pray.